0: Let's open our Bibles to 2 Chronicles, chapter 3. Last week we looked at Solomon's request for wisdom and God basically giving him a blank check and God being so impressed by David's answer that he not only gave him what he asked for, meaning he, uh, Solomon asked for wisdom and understanding and how to... Uh, judge so great a people as the people of God and so God was so impressed with that answer that he not only gave him his request at that moment God gave him everything he needed and then he just he just walked in that truth and that reality and then the Lord just expanded his heart and his mind as he went but he not only gave him what he asked for he gave him what he didn't ask for and that was for riches and wealth and within a, a decent reason, and then Solomon augmented it even further, I think, and it got him into some trouble with the uh, having more wives. You know he had a thousand wives and multiplied horses and chariots, these things that were forbidden in Deuteronomy for kings to do. because when you do that, you're setting yourself up for failure when you 're relying more upon your own military prowess rather than relying upon a God who can save you from any calamity, any destruction that might be coming your way and, and, and israel unfortunately they they got into that place where they were relying more on their armaments and, and the same thing is true today they 've got one of the best armies, the best military complexes in the world. Um, my brother, um, who has had some special force training. Uh, on the Lee County Sheriff's Department down in Florida, he has told me that they've had guys from Israel come over and show them, the Sheriff's Department, the men on the Sheriff's Department, how to shoot, different ways to shoot the gun, uh, and, they, and just you know hostage negotiation, all this stuff, because they are very well-versed in all of those things, because it's kind of like their reality. And so they know much more than we do. And so they're very, they're very good at what they do, but when you rely upon your military and not on God, that becomes a problem. So Solomon did get into trouble, and, um, and then it went on in chapter one, uh, Solomon's military and his economic power, and then his preparation to build the temple, and how God had put on David's heart to give his son all the materials, all of the, the blueprints, all of the help that he needed, and then finally, we now um, it starts, and now David passes from the scene, and now Solomon is in, uh, and he's now king. And let's just read to what it says here in verse 1. It says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, or Arunah, the Jebusite. And so this temple that is being built is going to be built north of Zion on, the, on Mount Moriah. So this is just a... A graphic of where david 's palace was, and this is really what is called Zion. This is the city of David, and Jerusalem would encompass this and much more. but Zion is just this little sliver down in the uh, south of, of the temple Mount, and David would live right here, but ultimately, after he died, Solomon would live there, but then the temple would actually be built up here on the very rock that we believe that Abraham offered up Isaac on that very mountain. If you go back in Genesis chapter 21, and uh, you'll find that, that that's where uh, that happened, right there on the top there. And so, and then Aruna's threshing floor is just a little bit over to the side of that. And, and, and again, this is a very large area. And th- this is where David, or Solomon, excuse me, would build the temple. And so, And remember, this place was chosen because it was a place of sacrifice. And that's what a temple is. Without a temple, there can be no sacrifices. A a proper Jewish temple would require sacrifices to be done there. That's why they would call it a temple. If it was just a place of teaching, they would call it a synagogue. But when there's actual worship, a temple would have to be built. And this was a place of sacrifice. And remember, it was on this very spot that God had... Um, That David had built an altar because, remember, he had taken a census that was unlawful and um, kind of puffed up in his own pride. He took a census to find out how many people were in his kingdom that could fight. In other words, he was sizing up his armaments, his military, and, and, and God held him accountable for that. And God gave him three choices for punishment. And David didn't choose any of them but allowed God to make the decision for him. And so it came down to something quick but it would cost 70,000 lives of men and it would happen in a three-day period. And so a plague would break out and David, to stop that plague, he built an altar and God requested him to do this. If you, you know, so he built that altar right at, at the top there on, Mount, or on uh, top of Mount Moriah on Aruna's threshing floor and that was where David decided this is the place where we need to, to worship God is here because God answered by fire. It was very dramatic And so David's heart was, okay, this is the place. And so that's where they continued. And that's where the temple was built. That's where the altar was built. That's where their sacrifices went on for hundreds of years following that event in David's life. And, you know, if you think about this, you know, remember that the heart of worship is sacrifice. And the heart of David and Solomon was fixed upon building this temple for that reason, to worship God. And not just to worship him in singing. Remember, David was the first king um, up until that moment to really institute a, an overhaul in their worship. Not, so now, under David's reign, not only would it include the, the, all the offerings, the burnt offerings, those things, but now David would expand this greatly and now include music, singers, and those on stringed instruments, those on percussion instruments and, and trumpets. And he would expand the worship very greatly. And what greater vocation, really, and what greater focus than to focus on the one who has created you, and the one who has ultimately can save you from eternal damnation if you put your faith in Christ. What greater thing could one do than to worship this God of mystery? I like that song we just sang, you know, God of all splendor, you know, and, and we, we think about that the lyrics to that song. and it's pretty deep. And yet the song doesn't even do it justice. There's no written song that can do God justice. And so many today worship many things. They worship houses. They worship material possessions. And even some people worship other people. And all of these things one day are going to perish. But God and his word will abide forever. Amen. And he deserves our worship. And David and Solomon were like, Lord, this is what we, this is what we were created to do to worship you. And so verse two, he says, and Solomon began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. In the fourth year of his reign. Now Solomon began his reign in 970 BC. So we're looking at the fourth year of his reign. We're looking at about 966 BC when he began to build this temple and it would be completed Seven seven and a half years later, actually, around the uh, September, October, November time frame of nine fifty nine BC, and so it took about seven and a half years. In fact, in uh, First chronic or excuse me, First Kings, you might want to just write these references down because I'm going to read them to you. But First Kings, chapter six, verse one, and then in verse thirty eight, and let me just read them to you because uh, it doesn't give us the, this specific detail here in Chronicles, but in First Kings it does. Because remember, Kings and Chronicles are, are, are parallel accounts in some ways, but Chronicles has a different slant, a different uh, objective in it, and so they're not completely identical. Some, well, one of them may provide more information than the other, but let me just read you First Kings 6, verse 1. It says, and it came to pass, and this is the parallel account, if you will, in Kings. And it came to pass in the 480th year, notice, detail, And this is how we determine when things happened with information like this from the Bible. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So we are given a lot of information here. So this means that the Exodus, if, if, uh, if he began his reign in... 970 and you go back you know 480 years that puts the, the the exodus that the exodus of Israel leaving Egypt took place in 1446 B.C. And then in 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 38 that I had you write down it says this so it started in the second month of Ziv in the fourth year of his reign, and now it says in now in the eleventh year in the month of Bull, and this is the ancient name of uh, of the month before the Jews adopted Babylonian names for the month, which is the eighth month. The house was finished in all its details and according to its plans, and so he was seven years in building it. Literally seven and a half years is really, if you include the months as well. And so this is the foundation, it says in verse 3, which Solomon laid for building the house of God. And notice, so now we're going to get some dimensions of how this thing was built. And rather than just read through this, I'm going to show you graphically what some of these things look like because it'll hold your attention and I think it'll actually help you a little bit better. If you're like me, I'm a very visual person. I like to play with crayons and markers. I'm only kidding, I don't like to play with crayons anymore. But I like seeing visual representations. So this is the foundation which Solomon had laid for the building of the house of God. The length was 60 cubits, and by cubits, according to the former measure. A cubit is about 18 inches, basically from here to here. And that is a standard cubit. There was one other cubit that was used at different times, and it was called the royal cubit, which extended this about 3 inches. So, to 21 inches. That was called a royal cubit. But these cubits are just 18 inches long. And, and so, you can see in this picture, you can see the, you know, as we go along here, uh, the, the length was 60 cubits for this main area right in here, the, the nave, if you will. And then it goes on. And so, one cubit is 18 inches. So, 60 cubits is 90 feet. And the width of this whole thing was 20, uh, 20 cubits, which is 30 feet. Notice in verse 4 in our text, and the vestibule that was in front of the sanctuary, which is this area right here in the front, was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the height was 120. And he overlaid the inside with pure gold. And so this vestibule, uh, 20 cubits long, 30 feet. Now, according to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 3 the vestibule was 10 cubits wide or 15 feet. And so you take all this into account and the temple was about 105 feet long and 30 feet wide. And there's this phrase in this verse where it says, and the height was 120. This seems to be, um, many believe that this is a scribal error. And, and, and remember when we were going through Uh, Kings and Samuel, one of the challenges for scribes when they were translating or transcribing the original manuscripts, which were flawless, as they began to copy those things, little slip-ups happened, and specifically in names and in numbers. Because in Hebrew, sometimes one number with just a little bit of a mark on it can change the the, the the number itself instead of being fifty it could be five hundred instead of five it could be five hundred just by a little and so uh, degradation and those corruption can happen very easily don't let that throw you because names or it happened with names and with numbers and and and, and throughout the Bible especially in Samuel Kings and Chronicles you're gonna see that from time to time and don't let that throw you because that's not doctrinal that's not doctrine that is happening here it's just numbers and it's just a scribal error. So, But 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2, comments on this and says this. Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, which we've already read in Chronicles here. And its width, 20, and its height was 30, not 120. So now we're looking at 45 feet tall as opposed to 180 feet tall. So again, we, they believe that's just an error in the, in the scribe that, that translated that. But going into verse 5 here, so is everybody okay with that? I think you're strong enough believers that it doesn't throw you. But some people, that throws them a little bit. Um, but don't let that throw you. Verse 5, it says, The larger room he paneled with cypress, and so the larger room would be this nave area in here. This would be the 60 cubits or ninety feet in length and twenty and thirty feet wide, that area in there would be uh, paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold, and he carved palm trees and chain work on it, and he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty. And the gold was gold from Parvaim, and this place called Parveim, nobody knows where its location is, and so nobody knows. But gold, as you know in the Bible, speaks of deity. And because it is the most precious metal known to man, it speaks of the value and the preciousness of God, which can't be really numbered. But we take the best that we have in this world and say, that's the best, that's the best we have is gold. The finest gold, Lord. That, only that can we really think about you <laughs> and as far as your grandeur and your beauty. And so verse 7, he also overlaid the house. The house, the the beams and the doorposts, its wall and its doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Now the most holy place will be this area right in here. This is a literal cube, a thirty by thirty cube, and this is the only place in the temple where there would only be three objects. There would be the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim overlooking the mercy seat. And then on each side of that Ark of the Covenant would be two 15 feet tall standing cherubim with men's faces with wings. And their wings would touch each other. And then their outside wings would actually touch the sides of this, this area right here on either side. And that was the only pieces of furniture in the Holy of Holies. And this is called the holy place. And this is the holy of holies. And the only one who could go in here would be once a year, it would be the high priest to atone for the sin of Israel. and He would take blood and go in and put it on the mercy seat. And God says, I will meet you there at the mercy seat. And if you think of it, Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus was the one who whose blood has covered our sin, just as the blood was covering that mercy seat and the the cherubim were looking down upon it. So all of these things are symbolic of God's nature. And it's really wonderful to actually look in that. And so he, uh, verse 8, And he made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width of the house, so 20 cubits or 30 feet, and its width, 20 cubits, and he overlaid it with 600 talents, of fine gold. Do you have any idea how much gold this is? The most holy place, um, it was uh, 600 talents of fine gold, is approximately 23 and a half tons of gold. Now, the day before yesterday, the price per ounce of gold was $1,900.75 per ounce. Do the math, and I did, it comes out to be 1 billion. Four hundred and fifty-three million six hundred thousand dollars—the value of that gold—chump change for God, <laughs> right? But this is extravagant worship. Isn't he worth it? Is he worth it? Yes, he is. He's worth it. You know, the, and then that's what worship is. You know, sometimes we think—and Saul got into this problem. Remember when he was king, Israel's first king. You know, God told him to wipe out the Amalekites, to wipe everything out. Men, women, children, livestock, everything. They weren't to keep a single thing. And Saul, because his heart was not like David's, Saul decided, well, we'll, we'll kill most of the people, but we're going to save the best, the best of the animals for us. And then he blamed it on the people. And then finally, Samuel took him to task on that. And ultimately, Samuel had to kill Agag because Saul did not have the guts or the heart to do it when God commanded him to do it. But there is nothing so precious to us that we ought not to be willing if he asked for it, asked for it to give it to him. And that's a real challenge. But see the more we understand how great a salvation he has given us. And again, God is not looking for your money. You can keep your money, but if he asks you to, to do something with something, would you be willing to do it? And it's a good heart check. And that's why even in our giving here at the church, and this is just a small thing, you know, tithing, you know, that's a very important thing. And it's important for us to do those things because it really is a measure of where our heart really lies. Because if I'm greedy and all I care about is my, my five oh one, you know, or you know, my four hundred one K and my my nest egg then I'm I'm going to be stingy and not do anything. And God says, well, try me and, and you give to me and see that I won't pour out a blessing upon you. And so, But it's good to be ready and have an attitude like that because that is where worship really begins. And it's not just money. It could be your time. But see, David and Solomon knew that this worship of this God had to be extravagant. There was no other building like this ever in the history of the world, and neither is there today. Think of this no one would lay the amount of gold 23 and a half tons of gold in anything they couldn't afford it and yet the jews did that for their god and would we be willing to do the same for our god that's why when we make improvements to this place you know we want to make as much of it as we can to be a reflection of who the god we serve he's not some slovenly you know slave master no, he's the great king of all creation. He deserves the best. He deserves extravagant worship. Not for us, for him. And there's the difference. It's not about me, it's not about you. It's all about him, amen? Verse nine. So he goes on and he says, the weight of the nails even was 50 shekels of gold. Think about that, guys. For those of you who are carpenters or have done some work, you know, a, a, a gold nail. Think of that. And he overlaid the upper area with gold. In the most holy place that we just looked at, he made two cherubim fashioned by carving and overlaid them with pure gold. Now, these cherubim may represent, um, uh, could represent the four living creatures, these angelic beings that are before the throne of God in heaven. We read about that in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. It could be a representation of them, but notice in verse 11, the wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits in overall length. In other words, both of them together spanned 30 feet. One wing of the one cherub was five cubits touching the wall of the room, and the other wing was five cubits touching the wing of the other cherub, and then... The one wing of the other cherub was five cubits, touching the wall of the room, and the other wing also was five cubits, touching the wing of the other cherub. And the wings of these cherubim span twenty cubits, or thirty feet overall. They stood on their feet. Notice these aren't. Don't confuse these cherubim with the cherubim that are overlooking the Ark of the Covenant, because the mercy seat, uh, that's the, the 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 lid, if you would, on the Ark of the Covenant, is made of gold. And the cherubim are molded into that. So if you lifted that lid off the Ark of the Covenant, you'd be lifting the lid and the cherubim that are all one molded piece of gold. And then the, 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 the stone tablets that Moses, that God gave to Moses are inside. And no one was allowed to look in there after they were put in there. And so, but don't confuse these cherubim with these other two cherubim with their wings spreading out, touching one another and touching the sides and they would look facing the nave or facing this area right in here, looking forward in that and their wings would touch together and they, and that's where they would be. And they stood watch over the Ark of the Covenant. And as you know, this is what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Something like that. It's pretty gorgeous. Solid gold. And that whole thing, that lid comes right off with those, the smaller cherubim. But I like in this picture here a little bit better that the other one didn't have. In this one, we have the Ark of the Covenant here and then the cherubim on either side of it. And those are the only pieces of furniture in the Holy of Holies. And so Solomon's temple was much about twice the size of the tabernacle that Moses had erected many years prior to this. And so uh, Exodus 25, verses 17 through 21, talks about this Ark of the Covenant, uh, but we won't get into that. But notice in verse 14, back in our text, it says, and he made the veil, this veil that would separate between the holy place and the holy of holies, Uh, He made the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen and all these colors have purposes behind them. Certainly blue, we think of the heavenly origin of God and purple, perhaps a royalty and crimson, uh, you know, a kingly, uh, priestly kind of thing and fine linen, white linen speaks of purity. And notice in verse 15, and he also made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high and the capital Was on top of each of them was five cubits. Now, based on 1 Kings 7, verse 15, and also in Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 21, these were actually 18 cubits apiece, or 27 feet tall, each of them. Now, it's very possible that when they made it, it was 35 cubits long, and then they cut it in half. And then use those, and that's what um, may be re- referring to here. But those other two scriptures, again, First Kings seven verse fifteen and Jeremiah fifty two twenty one, speaks of them literally being eighteen cubits each, or twenty seven feet. Um, tall each. In verse 16, and he made wreaths of chain work on these pillars as in the inner sanctuary, and he put them on top of the pillars, and he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of chain work. So as you read all of these things with the gold, can you imagine walking in to this holy place where the lamp stands, there's going to be 10 lampstands we're going to learn, and there's going to be lights up in the top shining down and hitting that gold all around and all the fancy, intricate work, let me tell you, that would demand an awe. You would walk in there and you'd probably fall on your face. And you're just in, in, in reverence to see something so glorious and so beautiful. And yet it doesn't even match who God really is. It's it tries. But there's nothing that compare to him. There's nothing in the world. No matter how fine of a gold you can have, no matter how beautiful your jewels and pure diamonds, the very purest of everything is nothing compared to God. I don't know about you, but that that it, it just brings in your heart a sense of worship and that that's who he is, and yet this awesome and holy God who's full of love and compassion loves you and I, and he's not angry with us he's not up there just waiting to pounce on us and crush us because of our sin. Rather, he he went to the cross for you and me. And folks, there's nothing better. There's no one better. No one has ever claimed the claims of Christ. No one has ever claimed to die for anyone's sin except for Jesus and all of the different world religions. Think about that. Sin is a problem, wouldn't you agree? I mean, just look around. Look at yourself in the mirror. Look at the world. Sin is a huge deal. And God said, the soul that sins shall surely die. But the other world religions don't really offer us any help, do they? Only Christ says, because I'm God, I will pay the price. And because it has to be a perfect and holy sacrifice, no one is able to do it except for me. So I will do it. I will come incarnate in the form of a man, and I will pay the price for the ransom of man. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In the miraculous virgin birth, hallelujah. Can I get an amen in the house? Yes, a little Pentecostalism's not bad. Yes, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And notice verse 17, then he set up these pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And he called the name of the one on the right side, Joachim, and the name of the one on the left, Boaz. So if you look at the picture, the one on the left is Boaz, and the one on the right is Joachim, and they all mean something. Boaz means in him is strength. Speaking of God Almighty himself and Yaqeen, he shall establish. And certainly as you look at those two names of these different pillars, it's looking forward into the millennial reign who ultimately is going to be Christ on the throne. Amen? He is going to be the one because he, in him, in God is strength. And he shall establish it and he will establish it. Nothing and no one can stop him. And no one would want to stop him. The church of God is like, Lord, do it now. Let's get the rapture done and let's get this whole tribulation thing over with. Let's come back and finish this thing. The child of God is longing. Aren't we longing for the truth and the real love and the real restoration of all things? And it gets even better after the thousand-year reign, folks. I'm, you know, just, But even to have the thousand-year reign right now is mind-boggling. Let your heart be raptured with that, because that is the truth. so going on into second chronicles four notice he goes into more detail about the furnishings of the temple. He says moreover, he made a bronze altar, twenty cubits was its length, twenty cubits its height, and ten cubits its or i 'm sorry twenty cubits its width, and ten cubits its height and so, when we look at this altar, this thirty by thirty by fifteen structure, this bronze altar. Would be in the courtyard of the temple, right in front of it, just to the right of the main entrance. And then it says, Then he said, or excuse me, then he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. And so we have something that looks like this. It was 15 feet in diameter. It was seven and a half feet high. And it was 45 feet in its circumference. And it was a huge basin. And under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around. Ten to a cubit all the way around the sea. And the oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. And it stood on 12 oxen. What you can't see in this picture, but right around the lip of this thing are these engravings of these uh, oxen that he's talking about. And they're all around the lip of this thing. And, um, and then, they, of course, you have the oxen underneath uh, supporting the weight of this thing. And it says, and it, it stood on 12 oxen, three looking f- toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east. The sea... That that bronze bull was sitting on top of them and all their back parts pointed inward. And these 12 bulls may represent the 12 tribes of Israel in their arrangement in the camp during the exodus. You can read about that in Numbers uh, chapter 2. But then in verse 5 it says, and it was a hand breadth thick. So about three inches thick. So that's a hand breadth. So it's about three inches. That's how thick this bronze sea was. And its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. And it contained 3,000 baths. It was capable of holding 3,000 baths. Now what is a bath? 3,000 baths would be equivalent to 18,000 gallons of water. And in other scriptures, in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 26, it says that it contained 2,000 baths or 12,000 gallons of water. So evidently, they didn't fill the thing completely up, but maybe just put in 2,000 baths of water, which is 12,000 gallons of water. And this would be specifically for the priest's for their ceremonial cleansings as, as part of the worship service. And he also made, verse 6, he made ten lavers and he put on them, on the, uh, five on the right side and five on the left to wash in them. Such things as they offered for the burnt offering they would wash in them. But the seed that we just looked at back here, that was for the priests. But these five lavers on each side of the temple were specific for the animals that they would wash before they would offer them on the altar. And so, pretty interesting things. Verse 7, it says, And he made ten lampstands of gold. Remember, in Moses' tabernacle, there was one lampstand. It was the menorah. But now we have ten lampstands, five on this side and five on the other, just like we looked in that diagram earlier. As you'd walk into the temple, you'd see those tables of showbread, which we're going to find out soon. There'd be five on each side. And then there'd be lampstands on each side of those lighting up the whole room. Think of that, candles or oil being lit and shining against that gold. Can you imagine what that looked like at night? Just knock your socks off, right? Right? He made 10,000 lampstands of gold according to their design and set them in the temple, five on the right side, five on the left. He also made 10 tables, and we believe these were the tables of showbread, which we saw in uh, Moses' tabernacle. Remember, as you would walk into Moses' tabernacle, as soon as you walked in, you would see on your right side a table of showbread, which is symbolic, really, of Jesus, the bread of life. And then you look over to your right, and then there would be the lampstand. And it symbolized Christ. He's the light of the world. And then you look straight in front of you, and there'd be an altar of incense. And the Bible says that the incense is the prayer of the saints. And then there'd be a veil behind that. And then on the other side of that, in the Holy of Holies, would be the Ark of the Covenant. But now in this greatly expanded temple, everything was doubled. Everything was doubled, and sometimes doubled by ten as in the case of the tables, the lampstands, the lavers. Furthermore, verse 9, he made the court of the priests, and the great court and doors for the court, and he overlaid these doors with bronze. Notice that everything outside of the temple is made of bronze, which speaks of judgment in a a sense. But everything on the inside, as soon as you walk through those doors, which only the priests were allowed to do, was all gold. But everything on the outside was bronze or brass, or brass. And he set the sea on the right side toward the southeast. And so that's literally what we see when we look at this picture. The sea, if you were actually to look at the temple from this side, this would actually, because over here would be north, and then coming over here would be east. So this would be southeast of the temple is where the sea would be uh, for the priests. And then over here on the right side would be the great altar where they would do the sacrifices. Verse 11 says, And then Huram made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. And so Huram, remember, Huram was the master craftsman of King Hiram of Tyre, which is modern day Lebanon today. And Hiram sent his master craftsman, and his name just happened to be Huram, sent him to Solomon to help his men to continue doing these wonderful, incredible things. Very artsy, very decorative, very highly skilled things. And so Hiram finished doing the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of God. And then verse 12, the two pillars and the, the bull shaped capitals. So these two pillars that we looked at earlier, there they are, Boaz on the left side and Jacquin on the on the right side. And it says the two pillars and the bowl-shaped capitals, those are those things at the top, were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals, which were on top of the pillars. Verse 13, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the tool the two bull-shaped capitals that were on the pillars. And so if you were to zoom in on some of these things here, you would see those little pomegranates and all of this intricate detail in these kinds of things. And he also made carts and lavers on the carts. One sea and 12 oxen under it. Also the pots, the shovels, the forks, and all their articles. Huram, his master craftsman, made of burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zaredah Now, this place, the, this location where they found the clay, they, they found the location, they believe, of where Solomon did this. And it's actually... Um, If you were to look at a map, and I'm sorry I didn't do this, but if Jerusalem is here, and the Dead Sea is right here, and up here is the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in the middle here, there's a river Jabbok, and it goes over here. Just a little bit north of that is this place where they found, where they made these clay uh, molds for these articles that they would fill with gold and they would use these for the temple worship. And again, it was done on the other side of the Jordan, these things, because the clay was good over there and that's how they made their molds for these things. And all you have to do is make the mold, smooth it all out, make it the way out and then pour the gold in there and let it, let it cool and then you've got your article that you were looking for. And so in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zareda. And Solomon, verse 18, had all these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. And thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, the altar of gold and the tables on which was the showbread, the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold of purest gold. The trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors to the most holy place and the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. (laughs) I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm just like undone. And, 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 you know, when you think about the grandeur and the expense of all this, and yet I think to myself, God, are you worth it? And there are many people in the world that say, you know, you're not worth it. I don't know you. I don't care to know you. But isn't it true as believers, we love God. We love Jesus. We love him for what he's done for us. He's done so much. How can you put a value? I mean, think about this, folks, for just a second. And, and I'm talking to the family here. So this is, you know, when, when you think about hell and it's eternal, it'll never end okay? He saved you and I from that. From an eternal flame that we will be in a resurrected body that will be able to withstand, and you would never be consumed. The fire wouldn't quench you. The fire wouldn't be quenched on you. It wouldn't consume you. You would continually be in torment forever. And how, why would God do such a thing? because you rejected his only means of salvation. You'd make that choice for yourself. But even hell wasn't made for people. Do you know that? It was actually made for the devil and his angels. But when we reject Jesus Christ, that is the place that we put ourselves in. When we reject the only means of salvation, when God does something for you, you know, we ought to uh, respond with a little respect and thanks. And when we do that, when we give our heart to him, think of that eternal damnation. That's what I've been saved from. I can't even fathom that. But guess what? I'll never see it. And it's not because I'm some goody two-shoes. No, I'm only going to be in heaven because he has purchased me and I know he's got me. And he doesn't make mistakes. And he doesn't make mistakes with you either. When he gets a hold of you, you can have the assurance of salvation. You must know that the Bible teaches assurance. Because if you don't have assurance in your heart, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, what are you going to get your assurance? How are you going to get it? Are you going to do enough good things that somehow God will say, you know, like the old famous, you know, caricature of Saint Peter at the pearly gates, which he's not going to be there, by the way. Uh, there is no pearly gates in that regard. Uh, but uh, you know, there's nothing you can do. To earn that favor, all you have to do is believe in the one who paid the price for you, Jesus Christ. It's as simple as it gets, and yet people stumble over it right into hell every day. They like their sin, I want to do what I want to do, and that's my choice. I want to do it my way. You know, I mean, think about it. I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life, right? Right? Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. And see, that's the idea. Sorry, I don't mean to quote quote Billy Joel there, but, um, but that's the attitude of people's hearts. And yet he saved you and purchased you. And if you're wondering whether you're one of his, just cry out to him and say, Lord, I want to be one of yours. It's that simple. I don't want to play games anymore. I want to be one of yours. I don't want to go around in my life and and do it my way. I was doing my way, and it wasn't getting me very far. I was heartbroken, lost, confused, you know, jaded, disenchanted, discouraged, overwhelmed by my own sin and my choices that I put myself in. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It is. See, that is what, that's why we serve such an awesome God. That's why we serve him. Will you love him tonight? Will you love him tomorrow? Will you give him all of your heart? And give him every area that you are just, even the areas that you're not so sure about. Say, Lord, I don't even know what I'm capable of doing, but Lord, those dark recesses in my heart that I don't even know I have, Lord, would you come inside and would you shine the searchlight on all those dark areas? I give you permission do you know he waits for permission? Lord, I give you permission. Well, didn't David say that? Created me a clean heart, O oh God, and, and, and search me out, Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me. That's basically what David's saying. Lord, turn on the million kind of power flashlight and go inside of every recess and area of my heart and my mind and you shine the light and you purify, you cleanse it. And see, that's folks, that's what we need to do. It's our great delight. Holiness is not a four-letter word. Holy is a four-letter word, but not the word that you're thinking. Holiness is good. Real holiness is just separation from the world and being separated to God. Don't be so hanging on to the things of the world You know, it's really sad when you find, I remember, you know, somebody, this article I saw one time, this woman, she loved her Cadillac so much. It was a pink Cadillac. And she liked her Cadillac so much that she wanted to be buried in it. And I thought how horrible that is because you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. And so what is on your heart? Are you willing to forfeit all the things of the world and receive Christ if you needed to? I mean, forfeit the the deeds of the flesh and the ways of the world that are just going to draw you away into corruption. Forsake those things. Put away those things, but put on Christ. Put him on. Because he wants to give you that fresh linen white robe that he'll just slide right over your arms for the asking. Will you do that? Most of us have, and hopefully all of us. But you know what? Sometimes we get a little dirty. We get beat up in the world. Maybe we allow things to come into our life that we've, you know, pushed away many years ago, and now we find these old sins of ours starting to creep up on us again. Do you find that happening? They do. They have a, don't ever get too confident in your own flesh and keeping it. Just surrender and abide in Christ and don't think about those things and let the Lord do that work in you and just rest like a child. You don't have to fight. You don't have to somehow squint and try so hard to just... You, You can't do it. Just relax. Take your hands off the wheel. Let him drive. He's a better driver. Take your hands off the wheel. Even as Christians, take your hand off the wheel. Right now, Tom Basile, let me tell you, the gyrations. I, I cried with him this morning. As he was contemplating what was going to happen today, it happened so quickly. I mean, boom, 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 boom. And now he's in surgery. It happened so quick. He had a hard time to even relate to what was happening. He thought he'd be there for another couple of weeks, and now it's today. He had to take his hands off the wheel, he had to trust. Hey, to trust God. Okay, Lord, my life is really in Your hands. It's serious stuff, folks. <laughs> That's very serious. It's one thing to get a you know a, a something removed or you know something fixed, but to take out a major organ like your heart and put another one in, and the intricacies and the mystery of it all is incredibly intense. But at some point, you take your hands off the wheel and you say, okay, God, this is where you've got me. This is where you brought me to. I must trust you. And I do, <laughs> but I sort of don't, but I do. And God's going, I got you. Don't you worry. you." Gotcha. And he's got you and he's got me. Aren't you glad? Yeah, he does. He's got you, folks. No matter what you're hurting, no matter what you're struggling with tonight, be loved by God. He loves you dearly. He does. And that's why we're going to take communion. We're going to remember what he did. We're not going to get to chapter 5 tonight. We'll get to it next week. Actually, next week we won't because we're going to have our Thanksgiving service, but the week following we'll do that, okay? But as, we, as Sarah and I worship, come up at your leisure and grab the elements and then bring them back to your chair and we'll take it together, okay? So if you're a believer in Christ, it's a joy to do this because these elements are symbolic of what Jesus said on that night in the upper room, remember? They're symbolic. They're not the literal body and blood of Christ. They're meant to be symbols, And he said, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And my blood, or my body, as he took the bread and he broke it, he handed it to his disciples. He goes, this is my body, which will be broken for you. But he said it in the past tense. Because he knew he was going to accomplish what he was going to accomplish on the cross. It was already a done deal in his mind. He had already gone to the cross in his heart. He goes, this is my body, which which is broken for you. But it hadn't happened yet. Think about that. And then, after they took that, they took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it, all of it. For my my blood that was shed for the sin of the world, for you and I. And see, that's why we take this. To remember, because we need to remember, because this world has a way like water on sandstone. The things of the world just try to erode our faith so much, Our everything, uh, all the music, most of the movies, most of the media, if not all of it, all that stuff is just like water dripping on sandstone, just dripping and wearing away at the fabric of your heart. And see, we need to be firm on the rock who is Christ, and he paid the price. That's why we do what we do. That's why we take this. And so please, as Sarah and I are worshiping, uh, just come up and take it, and we'll take it together, okay? Lord, we do honor you, Lord, and we pray that our lives would continue, Lord, to honor you and the things that, Lord, come from our heart, Lord, the things that come from our mouth, the very actions that we do with our hands and with our feet. and Lord, may you be glorified in all of these things. Lord, please touch us tonight, Lord, and remove any condemnation from anyone here tonight. Lord, remove anything that would just uh, hinder us from enjoying the, the the salvation that you've given us. Lord, the price was great. It was the price that you paid. It was the greatest price. And Lord, we thank you tonight for this salvation that you've given to each one of us. Lord, and we bring before you all of our sin right now, Lord. And we ask for you to wash it and cleanse us from it. Every single act of rebellion, every single physical thought, Lord, whatever it may be, Lord, the physical or the spiritual, the mental, all of it, Lord, we bring before you, we pray that, Lord, in one fell swoop, by the blood of Christ, you would wash us clean right now. And, Lord, we know that that is possible. And it's true. And you have. And that's why we take this, these elements, remembering what you've done. And so, Lord, help us to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake. If you would, please. On your way out, there's going to be a A basket by the door. Um, And for you men, I would encourage you not to try to do like a a hoop. And the reason is, because I've done this, because I'm a male, I tried to alley-oop it and the juice came out. It gets on the floor. So just gently, guys. See, you women are more genteel. You'll put it in the basket like civilized people. But us men, we need a little instruction. So brothers... Don't do what I did. Be decent. <laughs> no, seriously, it's a pleasure. Um, and what a joy it is, isn't it, to worship together and to get in the Word together. What, what great things God has in store for us. Do you know that? Such great and wonderful things. And, and this is just a little slice, you know, a little slice. And, and be encouraged by that. And I pray that you would all just have a wonderful day tomorrow, that God would just pour out his spirit upon you, and that he would bless you in everything that you do. And I pray that he would fill you, and that you would know that you're one of his, and that God would give you the grace and the boldness. Father, we ask that you do that tonight. Lord, that you would give us that grace, that boldness, that we need in a world that is just filled with so much corruption. Lord, you're awesome in all that you do. And so, Lord, you've got us. And, Lord, I pray that you would just take us and just help us, Lord. So we thank you for what you're going to do, and thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless.